You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am Yahweh, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land." and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins." And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts, against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock, 
and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be desolation, and your cities shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers, in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them, and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them. 
for I am Yahweh their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. These are the statutes and rules and laws that Yahweh made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Not trying to be pretentious using my middle name, but it is the middle name I was given. And so I use it and I don't know what else to use. A funny story about that, actually. I, you know, of course, today is May 9th, 2023. And episode 615 and all that stuff, right? All that stuff that I say at the top of every podcast episode. But a funny story, right? A funny story. The way it came to be that I started using my middle name, you might laugh. But I don't know how many people know this. Maybe nobody but the good Lord and myself know this. But the reason I started using my middle name is because I started getting, back when I had a Google Mail account that I was using as my main email account, I started getting mail from a different Garrett Mullet. (laughs) True story, right? This is the true story of why I use my middle name in my podcasting and in my writing anymore. I started getting mail for another Garrett Mullet. I'm not kidding. There's another Garrett Mullet out there. His middle name is not Ashley, but he spells his last name with two T's. And his Google mail is also GarrettMullet at gmail.com. I was an early adopter of Gmail, and so I was able to get GarrettMullet at gmail.com. And he also was able to get GarrettMullet at gmail.com. And the only difference between our two emails is... I use one T, he uses two T's. I should probably go check to make sure I'm not getting mail that rightfully belongs to him still. But his mail would occasionally come to my inbox. And so I reached out to him. I started forwarding him messages. He got one from a gal named Vanessa who was very interested in having had this conversation with him or introducing her uh, parents to him and him to her parents and I got the idea that there was something of a romantic attachment. And at first, before I really knew what it was, I first opened it up because it was in my email inbox. And it's like, oh, hey, Garrett. And it's like, oh, well, that's my name. And I saw the name Vanessa. And I, saw, I thought, oh, I have a cousin named Vanessa. And then I started reading. And it's like, oh, I don't think this is my cousin Vanessa. And I do not think I am the Garrett that this was intended for. <laughs> I don't think this is for me. And so I forwarded it. After doing some sleuthing and finding out, hey, there's another Garrett Mullet. There is another, as Yoda once said. And we are connected over social media. And every now and then I just check on him 
and see what he's up to. He seems like a neat, upstanding guy. He's been on missions trips around the world and uh, seems like he's successful. Last I checked, anyways, seems like he's doing well. I think he lived in Washington State or something like that. But every now and then, I just had to forward him things that I would receive, like, oh, I think this is for you. And he would say, oh, thanks. But I started using my middle name because I thought, well, if anybody gets confused the other direction, I want them to know that I am the one and only Garrett Ashley Mullet. And that's why I say the one and only Garrett Ashley Mullet. I'm not trying to be pretentious in using my middle name, but it does help to narrow things down. Odds are slim that there are three Garrett Mullets in the world. I thought odds were slim to none that there would be two, but odds are, I mean, they've got to be close to zero, if not zero, that there's another Garrett Ashley mullet out there. So thanks to my parents for that. That was good. Way to look out for me. Not that we would have expected this would be a common name, but you know, the funny thing is before we talk a little bit about Leviticus chapter 26, which is what I read at the top of the episode, I work as a contractor right now for a major oil and gas company here in Colorado. I work in their automation engineering department. And there are, I kid you not, two other Garrett's at least who might turn their heads and say, oh, who, who me? In the automation department at this major oil and gas company in Colorado, there are two other Garrett's. And so I suggested playfully last week, I think it was, when there was another case of confusion. Oh, you know, are you talking to this Garrett or the other Garrett? Uh, I suggest, well, you could call me Mr. Mullet. We don't have any more mullets here, although my brother used to work there. And so if he were still there, then it would be confusing that way too. But he's not there anymore. He's since moved on to another company. And I said, well, you could call me Mr. Mullet. And I got a very terse response. I'm not calling you Mr. Anything. Okay. Uh, So I don't know all of what's behind that. I have a lot of reasons to believe that some of what's behind that is uh, a little bit of rivalry, but I'm not going to get into that in this episode. That is under the hood. That is my own private business. I don't mean to overshare or burden you with that, although at the current rate, it will probably lead to future conversations on this podcast, Lord willing, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise. But such as it is, my name is Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I am your intrepid host here at the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I want to talk about everything, and that includes Leviticus chapter 26, where God talks to Israel about the blessings that come with obedience and also the punishment. And yes, I said punishment, the punishment that comes with disobedience. If his people don't obey and they consistently refuse to turn from their sins and come back to him and live faithfully obedient to his word, then he says very clearly in very stark terms what he will do. And he tells them this on the front end. And you might think from a public relations standpoint, if you read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, this is not the way to go about it. But then we have to remember, this is God. God's not trying to win friends and influence people 
in the same way that we so often do, where we can get downright uh, manipulative. I mean, sometimes, depending on the power dynamics and whether we think we have the cards, like I was talking about in our last episode, if we think we have the cards, maybe we try bullying. And if that does it for us, then okay, just as well, as long as I get what I want, as long as I've pressured this person and encouraged them to back off. But other times we can get very flowery and we can get very flattering if the power dynamics work the other direction or it's a toss up, right? So bullying and flattery both are kinds of bluffs, if you will, or they're kinds of bets sometimes when it's not entirely clear, but the odds are high that they have a better hand. If this is a conflict and I call them out, I say, nope, I think that's wrong. Maybe they have better cards than I do in the form of connections or experience or meanness even just. Maybe I will try uh, a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, so to speak. And God is not needing to flatter Israel here. And neither is he bullying them. He's just telling them very flatly, if you will obey, then there are blessings. If you will disobey, then if you keep on, if you persist in disobedience, woe to you. I'm warning you. And that warning is in good faith. And I don't mean good faith like God believes because God knows. And in some sense, I wonder, and this is speculative, but I wonder if some of what is coming out here is prophetic and we should take it as prophetic. I do wonder, because we've been talking uh, a little bit in my circles about Dennis Prager here recently, I do wonder how somebody who is a Jew who doesn't believe Jesus was Messiah, uh, how do they read these passages? I have something of an idea from N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul that gives me this character sketch for Jews around the turn of the, well, I guess, what do you call it? The turn of the millennium when you're going from BC to AD. Uh, Around that time, Jews were very pensive about characters like Phineas in the Old Testament. Phineas, who took decisive action to cleanse Israel from a certain young man who was sinning very flagrantly in full view of everyone, including but not limited to God, also the rest of the nation of Israel. He took decisive action, and we would be very uncomfortable with the decisive action that he took, but then we have to understand what's the motive, what's the intent of the person who is doing this sinning in the first place, given what they've been through, given what they know. They have no excuse whatsoever. Neither do we, but we claim to have... excuses all the time. Explanations are a different matter. But Israel could not claim to not know better. And this particular man had no excuse. And so Phineas took decisive action. And Jews, around the time of the incarnation of Jesus Christ our Lord, Jews were thinking long and hard about Phineas and how they got into this mess in the first place with the Romans ruling over them and a series of pagan empires, pagan nations and peoples 
ruling over them before the Romans. How did they get into this mess in the first place? I really do wonder, how do Jews think about these things to this day? And how should we as Christians think about these things to this day? Uh, For one, just to speak very candidly, I am not somebody who uh, tolerates or accepts quietly when people are critical of the Jews as a people. I say, well, there are some Jews who are doing uh, quite a lot of good. I think of Ben Shapiro, for instance. I think of Dennis Prager. I know he's in hot water right now, but I think of Dennis Prager as being a Jew who has done quite a lot of good in the United States of America and around the world by speaking up on behalf of the principles that he has. If we disagree with him on some things, if I I disagree with everybody on something or another, if we disagree with him on some things, that doesn't mean that everything he has contributed should be thrown out from the standpoint of being practical, pragmatic, prudential, fair, humanly speaking. God will be the judge of Dennis Prager and you and me, and we should take care on all of the above to judge with right judgment. Listen, when a man starts giving you explanations and reasons, listen and yes, reason with him if you can. If he won't listen, well, that's one thing, but have you tried? Have we tried? Have others tried? If you watch others try to reason with a man who you profoundly disagree with and you see that he is pig-headed or stubborn or stiff-necked or what have you, well, then you might reasonably suppose, well, there's no point in my throwing good time and attention after bad. And that's fair, right? But I'm not quite so ready. I am not so ready. Just speaking candidly, I, I am not ready to dismiss Dennis Prager. I think for too long, the left has been trying so hard to cancel him. And if conservatives finally are the ones who finish him off in the way of his influence in his later life, because he said some things that maybe make us, uh, not maybe, there's no maybe about it, definitely make us very uncomfortable with regards to sexuality. Uh, I say, let's take care. Let's really weigh and measure these things with care. So in my next episode, I hope to talk about an interview that Prager sat down for with Matt Frud of the Pints with Aquinas podcast. I'd like to talk through that and consider it. I'd also like to talk through some of Gavin Ortland's response to Dennis Prager, both and. I hope that will be our next episode. We'll see. We'll see. Lord willing, we live and do this or that, but just a little bit of a teaser because I think it bears mentioning, lest others have something of a chilling effect when it comes to speaking honestly. You know, how much of what is presented as the official perspective of American mainstream evangelical Christianity, how much of that is paid lip service to as a form of flattery, as a kind of just going along to getting to, to get along, right? How much of it is just, oh yeah, sure, fine. And we're not persuaded. We haven't been persuaded, but we've been bullied or we've been manipulated. We need to get out of this groupthink that so many of us are stuck in. If we want to be conservatives and we want to stand even the smallest of chances of standing firm in the faith and honoring God 
and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves and enduring persecution and enduring trials, if we want to have a hope of persuading one another, well then we have to let go of groupthink. Unity is not the same thing as groupthink. Groupthink is not the same thing as unity. So if we really do genuinely come to conclusions and we have a reasoned argument and it's offered up with gentleness and respect, great. And let's practice being reasonable in the household of faith with one another. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. That's a command. It's not just a command when God says, well, don't do this and don't do that sexually. It's also a command to let your reasonableness be evident to all. Do we pay half as much, a quarter as much, tenth as much, a hundredth as much attention to the call to be reasonable and to reason in an evident way? And by that, we should understand in a way that is, to some extent, public. If we're not paying any attention to whether we are cultivating the faculties, the skills, the knowledgeability, the wisdom, the insight, the ability to communicate, if we're not paying any attention to that whatsoever. I dare say we are emphasizing the sins of commission far more than we are appreciating the sins of omission. And the sins of omission are when we fail to do the good that we ought to do. We know the good that we ought to do and we fail to do it. And just because there are people who will say, ah, yes, It's okay for you to do this thing and enjoy it and make that your lifestyle and be proud of it. And now everybody's going to affirm you. Just because that has so much attention right now, that doesn't mean that we should let pass when sins of omission are similarly spiritualized. If it's sin either way, and if all sin is sin in some sense, leaving a mark on our souls, damaging our fruitfulness, our joy, our purity, our love for God and one another, if all sin is sin in some sense, and do we truly believe that with regards to sexuality, do we truly believe it with regards to doing good works and being reasonable? These are important questions that we need to wrestle with, and I'm not trying to throw stones myself, but I'm trying to remind myself and remind my listeners because I'm not convinced that the mainstream of American evangelicalism is balanced here as concerned with sins of omission as with sins of commission. But let's do move on. I want to read for you a selection from a book by G.K. Chesterton presented by Project Gutenberg. This is an ebook copy of Eugenics and Other Evils a collection of essays by G.K. Chesterton. Chapter 3, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll include a link to this full book, which you can either read or if you have some kind of narration software on your computer or your smartphone or your iPad or what have you, you can pull this up and then have that software hopefully read it for you. But chapter 3, True History of a Eugenist, quoting G.K. Chesterton. He does not live in a dark, lonely tower by the sea, from which are heard the screams of vivisected men and women. On the contrary, he lives in Mayfair. He does not wear great goblin spectacles that magnify his eyes to moons or diminish his neighbors to beetles. 
When he is more dignified, he wears a single eyeglass. When more intelligent, a wink. He is not indeed wholly without interest in heredity and eugenical biology, but his studies and experiments in this science have specialized almost exclusively in equus sailor, the rapid or running horse. He is not a doctor, though he employs doctors to work up a case for eugenics, just as he employs doctors to correct the errors of his dinner. He is not a lawyer, though unfortunately often a magistrate. He is not an author or a journalist, though he not infrequently owns a newspaper. He is not a soldier, though he may have a commission in the yeomanry. Nor is he generally a gentleman, though often a nobleman. His wealth now commonly comes from a large staff of employed persons who scurry about in big buildings while he is playing golf. But he very often laid the foundations of his fortune in a very curious and poetical way, the nature of which I have never fully understood. It consisted in his walking about the street without a hat and going up to another man and saying, Suppose I have two hundred whales out of the North Sea, to which the other man replied, And let us imagine that I am in possession of two thousand elephants tusks. They then exchange, and the first man goes up to a third man and says, Supposing me to have lately come into possession of two thousand elephant tusks, would you, etc. If you play this game well, you become very rich. If you play it badly, you have to kill yourself or try your luck at the bar. The man I am speaking about must have played it well, or at any rate, successfully. He was born about 1860 and has been a member of Parliament since about 1890. For the first half of his life, he was a liberal. For the second half, he was a conservative. But his actual policy in Parliament has remained largely unchanged and consistent. His policy in Parliament is as follows. He takes a seat in a room downstairs at Westminster and takes from his breast pocket an excellent cigar case, from which in turn he takes an excellent cigar. This he lights and converses with other owners of such cigars on equisillaire, or such matters as may afford him entertainment. Two or three times in the afternoon a bell rings, whereupon he deposits the cigar in an ashtray with great particularity, taking care not to break the ash, and proceeds to an upstairs room, flanked with two passages. He then walks into whichever of the two passages shall be indicated to him by a young man of the upper classes holding a slip of paper. Having gone into this passage, he comes out of it again, is counted by the young man, and proceeds downstairs again, where he takes up the cigar once more, being careful not to break the ash. This process, which is known as representative government, has never called for any great variety in the manner of his life. Nevertheless, while his parliamentary policy is unchanged, his change 
from one side of the house to the other did correspond with a certain change in his general policy in commerce and social life. The change of the party label is by this time quite a trifling matter, but there was in his case a change of philosophy or at least a change of project, though it was not so much becoming a Tory as becoming rather the wrong kind of socialist. He is a man with a history. It is a sad history for he is certainly a less good man than he was when he started. That is why he is the man who is really behind eugenics. It is because he has degenerated that he has come to talk of degeneration. End quote. Now, I would definitely recommend the rest of this. Read it. It's free. Listen to it if you don't have the time to sit and read it. Find a good transcription app or software or feature on your device. You might already have one built in to the iOS and listen to it if you can't sit down and read it, but it's free. It's totally free. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Thank you to Project Gutenberg for bringing this to our attention. But for the time being, I'm not going to read you the entirety of that book. What I will do is play cut one here. Thank you also to Hamilton Porter and notthebee.com for highlighting the Kansas City Chiefs kicker as he gives a commencement address at Georgia Tech. Here it is, cut one, take a listen, then we'll talk about it. I am someone not much older than all of you, yet I've been asked to speak, not because I am a great orator, or because I have a number of impressive accolades. Well, I guess I do have two Super Bowl rings. I just happen to be blessed by God to be really good at kicking a funny-shaped ball between two yellow posts. So as someone who is not paid to speak for a living, I'm about to pop off some hard truths. I don't care if you have a successful career. I don't care if you have a big bank account or you fly private. Many of you in this crowd will achieve these things. Some of you maybe already have. But in the end, no matter how much money you attain, none of it will matter if you are alone and devoid of purpose. As someone raised in a family of overachievers, success was expected. And as a young man, I found happiness in being celebrated for my worldly achievements. My inner desire to be celebrated manifested academically through long hours of studying and of course, riding the curve. That desire was pushed further by the many successes I attained playing here on the flats. All of you are here today because you are smart, capable, and hardworking people. But if we're being honest, the world is filled with miserable, smart, capable, and hardworking people. There are too many examples to list of people who have achieved great worldly success and fleeting happiness but in the end are unfulfilled. Now don't get me wrong, I want you to be successful, but this isn't so much about your career as it is using your talents, being your best, fulfilling the potential you were created for. It is said, what's done in the darkness will be brought to the light. This is a powerful reminder to us all that our actions matter, whether they're seen or not. Some of the most important people who have ever lived remain unknown, 
and their stories have yet to be told. But they still used their God-given talents to do great things and change the world. What a profound example to be motivated by our purpose rather than the current spotlight of the world. For many of you, your academic careers are coming to an end. For some, this is just one of many milestones. Either way, it is important to use today as an opportunity to take stock of your mission. Our culture is suffering. We all see it. It doesn't matter which political persuasion you sit on or whether you are a person of deep faith or not. Anyone with eyes can see that something is off. Studies have shown one of the many negative effects of the pandemic is that a lot of young adults feel a sense of loneliness, anxiety, and depression, despite technology that has connected us more than ever before. It would seem the more connected people are to one another, the more they feel alone. I'm not sure the root of this, but at least I can offer one controversial antidote that I believe will have a lasting impact for generations to come. Get married and start a family. Wow. I will say this is the, the most important ring I have right here. Having kicked the game-winning field goal in both the AFC Championship and the Super Bowl, I have received a great deal of praise for these successes. They just announced that this Super Bowl was the most watched football game of all time, and yet all of this happiness is temporary. And the truth is, none of these accomplishments mean anything compared to the happiness I have found in my marriage and in starting a family. My confidence as a husband and father, and yes, even as a football player, is rooted in my marriage with my wife as we leave our mark on future generations by the children we bring into the world. How much greater of a legacy can anyone leave than that? Sadly, we are encouraged to live our lives for ourselves, to move from one thing to another with no long-term commitment, to have loyalty for nothing but ourselves and sacrifice only when it suits our own interests. This loneliness is rooted in the lies being sold about self-dependence and prioritizing our career over important relationships. Slow clap. Slow clap. <laughs> this is great. I love it. I very much appreciate this. This is really good stuff. And I think that I would only take something away from it to say much more than what he said. Harrison Butker, his Twitter account is at buttkicker7. Harrison Butker may be a Catholic, but I have much more in common with him than I do with those who deny God's existence or relevance entirely. We could have a debate about theology and about church history, and I would welcome that, and I would mean no ill will in having that debate, but I have no debate. I have no argument against what he's saying here. I totally agree, and I've told a number of supervisors, managers, hiring managers, recruiters over the years this very thing that my job, my career, 
my profession is a means to the end of providing for my family. If I can provide for my family best here where I am, then here I am. And I will do my best. I will do my best at the point that it is possible for me to provide better somewhere else than I will go somewhere else. And I mean no ill will when I say that either. It's not mercenary. It's just the fact. If you want me on your team in some corporation or some company or some contract or some other pursuit, then you need to understand the pecking order. My priorities are God, my wife, my children, my extended family, my church family, my friends, then you. And if my working for a company facilitates and adds more benefit than the alternatives, then I'm here. If something better comes along that allows me to provide at a higher level, well then maybe that's where I need to go. And I'll weigh and I'll measure as the opportunities come up. But when that's my pecking order, I don't put those other relationships ahead of my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my children. It's not to say I never tell my wife and my kids, hey, listen, I need you to understand. I need to go do this thing. I need to work on this. I need to focus up right now. You guys are interrupting. You're making it hard to focus. Sometimes that's appropriate, especially when I work from home. But even there, the priority is I'm trying to provide for you guys and I need you to, I need you to help me to provide for you by letting me focus on what I'm doing right now. So kudos to this guy because he's right. There are a lot of people who they get their priorities way out of whack. And goodness gracious, consider some prominent examples from recent years. Tom Brady, for instance, for example, I don't mean to pile on. I'm not trying to be critical to pick on him or anything, but Tom Brady lost his marriage and was it worth it? Tiger Woods lost his marriage. Was it worth it? I mean, maybe to some extent, even who he married on the front end was decided based on his priorities. And so what better commencement speech to give to college graduates? For that matter, we should be giving this speech to high school graduates. For that matter, we should be teaching our kids this from little on up. One of the most important decisions you'll ever make is who to marry and, humanly speaking, how to raise your family. I will change jobs if I have to. I'm not going to just swap out my family. And more of us need to understand that that is as it should be. But I'll tell you briefly another thing that I can tease as an upcoming episode when I have finished the book, a book by Joel Kotkin, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. I won't get into it in depth in this episode, but I will say this as a teaser, as a reason for you to hit subscribe and also to pay 99 cents a month. It's not that much. It's really not. Sign up, 99 cents a month. You won't have to wait when every third episode is published. If you don't subscribe, well, you can still listen to two-thirds of these episodes as they are published and the rest, you'll have to wait until the beginning of the next month. If I publish in May, you won't be able to listen until June. And if you're 
hard pressed to catch up, maybe you say, well, what's the difference? You know, you produce so much content. I am going to take that long just to even uh, get to it. But let me just say, if it happens that I finish this book and don't talk about it more in depth on a podcast until my every third, and you don't want to wait until June or else forget about it, subscribe for 99 cents a month. Go ahead and do it today. It'll help me out. It helps to fund my podcasting efforts here, which also in turn helps me to provide for my family. There is a time commitment. There is an energy and attention commitment. I'm happy to do it because I do believe this is good. This is the good that I ought to do. And if I didn't do it, it would be a sin when I am able to do it. But The Coming of Neo-Feudalism by Joel Kotkin, I'll say this for right now, it doesn't necessarily tell me a whole lot that I didn't know. And you might be in the same boat. If you read this book, if I recommend it to you, if I describe it for you and you say, oh, I'm going to go check that out. And you listen to it and you say, oh, I knew all this. That doesn't mean that it's just whatever. Sometimes it's helpful not just to know things, but to know how to organize the information and what conclusions to come to. So I'll save any more to say about it for when I've finished the book and can tell you the ending as Joel Kotkin has written it. But for now, I mention it in passing because the next current events item I want to bring to your attention very much pertains to that cut that I just played for you, the clip, the audio, and also the book that I'm reading right now. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee just posted a piece today titled, Apparently NBC News Thinks This Is a Bad Thing. And this story is actually coming from the state that we now reside in for coming up on four years, Colorado. Uh, Oh no, it's an absolute disaster, Harris Rigby writes. Voters in Colorado voted in conservatives to the school board so that they could reshape public education to better reflect what their parents want. And then that school board delivered on their promises. Oh, the horror, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. What next? What next? NBC News, they tweeted out just this morning, 1032 a.m. New conservatives took over a Colorado school board and then, bullet point list, adopted a right-wing group's social studies program did not reapply for grants to pay counselors. 40% of the high school's professional staff won't return next year. Well, as Harris Rigby says, the way NBC frames this is insane. They adopted a right-wing social studies curriculum. What would you prefer, the 1619 Project? Clearly, yes. Didn't get grants to pay for counselors? Good. That's probably the single most woke and most dangerous position in any school. Public schools went without counselors for decades, and in the last 20 years, they've turned into woke empowerment officers. The schools will be better off. 40% of the professional staff leaving is also probably a good thing. The biggest drain on the school system is all the quote-unquote professionals on staff who won't teach, who don't teach. NBC News followed up with a couple more tweets. When a conservative slate of candidates won 
control of the school board in Woodland Park 18 months ago. They began making big changes to reshape the district. After teachers protested, employees were barred from discussing the district on social media and some were forced out. These sweeping shifts were taken from the MAGA playbook designed to catch opponents off guard, according to a board member's email. Quote, divide, scatter, conquer. One of the new conservative school board members wrote to another, quote, Trump was great at this in his first 100 days, end quote. Now, here's a big question, a big question that I have looking at this. Uh, how did you get hold of their private emails to each other? Why do you have their private emails to each other? NBC News. Curious, right? Curious. Let that be a lesson to us all that we shouldn't be emailing things or messaging things privately that we wouldn't want coming out into the public light. I am sobered by this thought. There may be some things that I have said and written over the years that taken out of context, if they were released to the public in a 30-second soundbite or just one sentence, you would say, oh, oh no, he said that? What? Take care, right? Take care with other people as well. We should be careful about whether we agree with their politics or we don't. We should take care to not just fall in line when a statement is shared with the public from private correspondence. There's a lot we don't know. If due process will be uh, observed, then okay, follow that rabbit hole. But it's a curious thing, right? It's a curious thing to my way of thinking. Hacked materials was the claim. That was the excuse that the previous regime over at Twitter used for censoring the New York Post, the entire account for the New York Post, for publishing an article about the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the 2020 election. Hacked materials. Oh, we don't distribute hacked materials. Sure you don't. Sure you don't. You don't when they're damaging to Democrats. I I understand. If they're damaging to conservatives, will you all day long without any sense of irony, without any sense of the double standard and the unequal weights and measures that you're employing? Yes. Yes, you will. And shame on you. But I recently had a chance to sit down with a number of men and one of the pastors at our church and also a retired pastor from a sister church in our organization. This retired pastor, he served for 20 years in Fort Collins. And over the last year, as he explained to us, he has had something of a realization dawn on him with children in our communities here in Northeastern Colorado attempting suicide and actually committing suicide and parents only finding out after the fact that their children were exposed to gender theory propaganda at the behest of woke public schools in the area. And so he has researched and he's dug deeper and deeper and trying to do the uh, due process thing sometimes actually turns up further proof that you didn't just smell a rat. There was a rat. You weren't imagining things. There is something very wrong. There's something very rotten in the state of Denmark. But one of the initiatives that he's been really pursuing, besides trying to appeal to pastors to get engaged in these issues and not to stay out of them just because 
The left is saying, this is political, none of your business. Walk away. You didn't see anything. Mind your business. Uh, God bless this older gentleman for doing that. I'm very encouraged. It's not the same thing that I'm trying to do. It's distinct, but I think it's very complimentary. One of the things that he is trying to encourage and facilitate and draw more attention to and raise awareness for is the fact that we have pornographic homosexuality uh, promoting, transgenderism promoting books in our public school libraries and and in the children's sections of our uh, county libraries, our local libraries, general public libraries. And so I bring this to your attention because I think that there's a lot of American Christians, there's a lot of moderates who are not terribly well-informed about political matters who have still no idea that this is in their local public school. Uh, One of my friends who is also helping to brainstorm what political action should look like for us in our community here in Greeley and what we can do, what we should do, prayerfully, we should consider that. He brought several of these books from our local public libraries in Greeley to the meeting. And I don't know if he had any idea that that was what this retired pastor would also be. Actually, both of them are retired pastors. But I don't know that either of them had any idea that the other would also be bringing materials, whether a slide deck or printouts or the actual physical books themselves, to this meeting to discuss. And yet it's important that we support that. It's important that we encourage those men, we thank those men, and we likewise follow their example. Dave and John, if you're listening, God bless you, and I'm so thankful for your encouragement. My interest is not primarily, as I told those men the other day, Monday, about noon, uh, my interest is not primarily in trying to ban books. It's not to say that I am going to try and discourage or stop anybody who is trying to do that. That's not what I mean. I wrote the book, and this is why we homeschool. My interest is first and foremost in having showdowns with the prophets of Baal. I think that that's uh, the path that the Lord has equipped me to take and to encourage other to, to encourage others of my generation to take in some sense after a fashion. Sure, if you want to offer your sacrifices to Baal, go for it. You offer your sacrifice to Baal, and all after uh, you've had your chance, had your fun, I'll offer my sacrifice to Yahweh God, and we'll see whose God is God. We'll see. If your God is God, then worship him. And if my God is God, well then, you've got some explaining to do. And that doesn't cease to be a factor. All of those uh, biblical themes that are encapsulated in the story of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, those themes are still in play, even if somebody says, well, wait, but this is political. But wait, the government is behind this. So what? The government was behind the prophets of Baal too in ancient Israel. It doesn't matter. So what? King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, which you may be familiar with, Jezebel being something of a pejorative when you call a woman a Jezebel. 
throughout most of American history on up to the present, most people would know what you uh, were meaning. If you if you had called, uh, let's say Kamala Harris, Jezebel, most people would understand. Oh, ooh, you mean like Jezebel in the Book of Kings, the, the first Book of Kings? Yeah, just just the same, the same one. But Ahab, Wikipedia tells me this. And speaking of books, Ahab was the seventh king of Israel. He was the son and successor of King Omri, the husband of Jezebel, according to the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible presents Ahab as a wicked king, particularly for condoning Jezebel's influence on religious policies and his principal role behind Naboth's arbitrary execution. The existence of Ahab is historically supported outside the Bible. Shalmaneser III of Assyria documented in 853 BC that he defeated an alliance of a dozen kings in the Battle of Karkar. One of these was Ahab. He's also mentioned on the inscriptions of the Mesha stele. Ahab became king of Israel in the 38th year of King Asa of Judah and reigned for 22 years, according to 1 Kings 16.29. William F. Albright dated his reign to 869 to 850 BC, while Edwin R. Thiel offered the dates 874 to 853 BC. Most recently, Michael Coogan has dated Ahab's reign to 850 871 to 852 BC. It's almost not the point, really. I'm sure it's important. Don't get me wrong. When he reigned, there is a true uh, dating, even if we disagree. Disagreeing doesn't mean that there's no truth. It just means somebody's got to be wrong. Several somebody's might be wrong. Everybody might be wrong, but there has to be a truth in order for people to be wrong. The point being, what happened in that story. GotQuestions.org points out Israel had gone more than three years without rain as a judgment for their idolatry. The prophet Elijah confronted the evil king Ahab and challenged him to a spiritual showdown. The king was to have all of Israel gather at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of the false god Baal, or Baal, as some say, and the 400 prophets of the false goddess Asherah, verse 19, on Mount Carmel, Elijah said to the people of Israel, quote, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. The people remained noncommittal at that point. Elijah then challenged the prophets of Baal, to prepare a bull as an offering for their God. Elijah would do the same. With this catch, they could light no fire on the altar. The God who answered with fire from the sky would be considered the true God. The people agreed that this was a good plan. And the prophets of Baal went first. The pagan prophets cried and danced around their altar from morning till noon with no answer from Baal. Elijah began to mock them, saying, Shout louder. Surely he is a God, perhaps... He is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. 1 Kings 18.27 So the prophets of Baal shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. 
Despite hours of effort, nothing happened. The historian's comment hints at the emptiness of Baal worship. Quote, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then what? Then what? Elijah then called the people to him as he repaired the altar of Yahweh. He used 12 stones and dug a trench around the altar. He then placed wood on the altar and laid the cut pieces of the bull on it. Elijah then had the people douse the altar with 12 large jars of water. The water soaked the sacrifice and the wood and filled the trench. Once the sacrifice was ready, gotquestions.org reads, Elijah prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then God did what Baal could never do. The fire of Yahweh fell from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and also licked up the water in the trench. The people of Israel bowed down and declared, The Lord is God, verse 39. Elijah then commanded the people to put the prophets of Baal to death in keeping with God's command in Exodus 22.20. Following this event, the Lord finally ended the drought and sent rain upon the land, 1 Kings 18.45. I will note Will Costello published a piece September 24th, 2022 in the Loveland Reporter Herald. Activists question Book availability to Thompson School Board District has process for determining what is appropriate. Oh, you have a process. Oh, ah, see, see, we didn't know, right? We didn't know that you have a process. You have a process for determining what is appropriate. Well, if you have a process, I mean, I don't mean to intrude. Like, carry on with your process. As long as you have a process. I we see we didn't think you had a process and that, that's why we were, you know, we were like, "Oh, what's going on here?" you know, like but uh, okay, cool. Right, that's good. Uh, you you have a process. That's all that's all we wanted to know. Thanks. Okay. We're we're just going to go home and watch TV. Saturday, Will Costello wrote, "Marks the end of National Band Books Week as conversations about books in schools." Royal districts, both nationally and locally. Now, let me just ask you, let, just for the sake of expedience and time, and I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You could read the full article for yourself if you want to know more, just with what I've teased here. If I speak amiss, please, please correct me. But, you know, if it just so happened that our libraries were promoting Mein Kampf, just hypothetically, if it just so happened that our libraries were promoting, oh, I don't know, the Satanic Bible. If it just so happened that our libraries were promoting the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and they were saying, hey, guys, hey, you kiddos, read these books, and they will tell you everything that you need to know in order to be happy. If they had a process, would that be a huge comfort, particularly when we started looking at the incidences of suicide and self-harm and the like for kids who read those books. If it turned out that 
our kids reading those books put them at a much higher risk of trying to harm their classmates, for instance. If the incidence of school shootings went up dramatically after reading these books, just hypothetically, would we be comforted by knowing that there's a process for determining which books are appropriate? Is this not just a variation on the trust the experts, follow the science, the science is settled type mantra of our day? It's the Wizard of Oz, really. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and powerful Oz commands you. I mean, never mind what you think of task force. Freedom, an organization spearheading the push to have these books removed from the purview of children instead of being promoted to children. Never mind that. Never mind however you might feel about some of the antics of some of those who are most passionate about getting these books out of our schools and protecting our children from being turned into sexual deviants and self-harm statistics. Put that aside for a moment and just ask yourself if somebody were coming to your child and saying, you know what I think? I think your life doesn't matter. I think that reality is an illusion. I think the only way for you to truly be liberated is to kill yourself. If somebody were saying that to your child and then you said, hey, listen, you can't tell my kid that. What are you teachers teaching? What are you librarians putting out there for our kids to read? What are you checking out to my child? If your complaint were met with, ah, get this trash out of here. If your complaint were met with, we have a process. Thanks. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for expressing yourself. We're also going to express our complete disregard for what you're saying. How would you feel if it actually turned out that your child harmed themselves or was the worst for it? If it actually turned out that our whole country will be under judgment as a result of this? If there's a God in heaven that we actually should have fear of, and his character does not change. In fact, it can't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if our country is under judgment right now, but it can get worse, and the promotion of these kinds of materials is a major contributing factor, and our saying absolutely not is a mark of obedience and repentance and holiness to our God. If it turned out that that were in actual fact, what you will know in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and in five years, 10 years, 20 years, you have a chance to look back. Would you rather look back and see that you did nothing, you said nothing, you made no complaint, you did not get involved because you cared about nothing so much as your current comfortable life? How would your comfortable life right now look to you in five, 10, 20 years? Wouldn't it pain you? Wouldn't it grieve you? Would you be able to keep good company with your conscience? Or would it haunt you? Think long and hard about how you will look back on your contributions today for decades to come, if the world stands. Lord willing and the creek don't rise. A comment here, a quote from Kane Young. You might say, as libs say to me all the time, you just want to burn books. No, I do not. I want to protect children, so we demand you secure these books in an area 
which requires parental approval before a child can check the, uh, can check it out. I wanted to say check them out because that would be more grammatically correct. But all the same, you take his point. You take his meaning. He's not even saying, hey, let's haul these off <laughs> into the park and have a bonfire. He's saying these should not be accessible to children without parents' knowledge and consent. Parental guidance, right? That's what PG stands for on movie ratings. Remember the days when it was parental guidance that movie ratings were known by? And then it was PG-13, so parental guidance, still PG in relation to the age 13. Remember the days when school teachers and administrators and librarians didn't say, you don't know anything. We know what's up. Silence before your betters. Remember those days? I remember those days. Pepperidge Farm remembers those days. Anyway, Not to Be Staff published a piece just today. Over the next two months, we'll get Supreme Court decisions on six cases that could drastically change America. Check them out here. It's important for us to know, to take note. One, affirmative action. Students for fair admissions, the president and fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the University of North. These two cases will determine the future for affirmative action policies, which were and are widely used by colleges to lower standards for black and other minority students and exclude higher performing students based on skin color and other traits. Affirmative action was accelerated by the 2003 case Grutter v. Bollinger, which allowed colleges to consider race. 20 years now. Number two, Religious Liberty, 303 Creative, LLC v. Alenis. Ever since the Colorado gays wanted to force Jack to bake the cake, the LGBT lobby has been demanding that we service their super gay events, even if that violates the fundamental teachings of our religion and the core of our conscience. This case by website designer Lori Smith, who says Colorado's law banning discrimination based on sexual identity is unconstitutional, may determine the future of religious liberty for business owners in America. Might I just suggest not to be your write-up on this could use a little work. We want to put our best foot forward. I understand you're doing a little bit of an entertainment piece alongside the reporting piece, but let me just say, you should be writing this in such a way as would reflect well on these cases if they are brought to the Supreme Court and your article is trotted out by the lawyers for the other side. Take care, right? This is not some private conversation. Even if it were, it wouldn't be a guarantee of safety. Take care. We need to take care as to how we're communicating these things. Number three, big tech, Twitter Inc. v. Amna and Gonzalez v. Google LLC. Three decades ago, Lawmakers protected internet companies by passing Section 230, a provision that exempts them from liability if someone says or does something illegal on their site. The argument is that a website like Facebook is not a publisher that condones or controls what is being written on the site. Therefore, it should not be liable for lawsuits. But as we've seen from exposés like the Twitter files, these websites are acting like publishers by choosing what content is allowed based on their ideological preferences. If Facebook bans sites like ours for posting stories that refer to men in wigs as men, then the argument goes 
that they should be liable to all the legal bindings of a formal publisher. If Section 230 is repealed, it would drastically change free speech on the internet, but not in all good ways. This is a good write-up. This is better, better than the religious liberty one, if I may say so. You were being more careful there. But this is well said. It's well said. And the Section 230 thing, it's a have your cake and eat it too for big tech. They have claimed the protections when it suited them, and then they've also completely ignored their own claims about the nature of their business when it has suited their political interests, namely getting Obama and Biden elected, getting Democrats across the U.S. elected, getting globalists around the world elected, promoting climate change and COVID lockdowns, etc. Immigration, number four, Pugin v. Garland and Garland v. Cordero Garcia. These cases could clarify the deportation process in America. The federal government is extremely lax on the deportation of illegals coming across the border, and many are granted lawful status on the basis of magic and fairy dust after they have entered illegally. Number five, government confiscation of property, Tyler v. Hennepin County. We covered the story of Geraldine Tyler, a 95-year-old widowed grandmother who had her home seized by Hennepin County, Minnesota in 2015 for owing around $2,000 in back taxes. The county sold the home for $45,000 and gave her none of the proceeds. If the biblical warnings against violating justice for widows were not enough, John Locke, the man who heavily influenced the declaration, said that a man who can have his property taken without his consent owns no property at all. Let that sink in, SCOTUS. SCOTUS needs to pay attention. Uh, Hopefully, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States of America, rules in favor of Tyler because that is an important, powerful precedent for American citizens like you and I. Don't get distracted by the shiny object of whether she was behind in her taxes. She should have had access to the rest of those $43,000 so that she could do something else with her life. If she was behind a bit on her taxes, okay, sell the property and settle the tax bill, and then give the rest to her. Otherwise, what is this? What is this? And what kind of a dangerous precedent will it set on the other side if the Supreme Court doesn't rule in favor of her? Sixth, finally, Biden's student loan bailout. Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown, six conservative states are suing to block Joe Biden from forcing taxpayers to pay for entitled kids, Barista degrees at liberal arts colleges across America. Biden wants to give everyone $10,000 off their student loans on the promise that COVID was a national emergency and somehow qualifies under the 2003 HEROES Act meant to relieve student loan debt during times of war. Of course, since the federal government doesn't make but only takes, this cut means someone else will be paying for the gender studies degree that rich kid got in 2010. If the court rules in favor of Joe, it would set a dangerous precedent and cause our economy to crash even faster. Now, let me actually push back just a little bit on this, just a, just a touch. I think what is needed more comprehensively, not that that's what's being decided in the Supreme Court case, but I think what's needed more comprehensively is an overhaul of the way that the government endorses college and university degrees by backing student loan programs. I think that needs to be overhauled and that that would go a long ways 
to individual young men and young women thinking a lot longer and harder about what they're willing to take out a loan for in the way of a degree program. That in turn would lead to a leaning up of higher education and they would deliver a better product. More degrees does not mean more prosperity, clearly. But higher education, for some things, very important, very necessary. If anything, we're watering down the importance by saying, oh, you get a bachelor's degree and you get a master's degree and you get a PhD and you get, you know, it, we're watering down the importance. And so then a degree means nothing. It's like a participation trophy almost. But then you get young people who are saddled with all this debt and what do they have to show for it? And there are only so many jobs that are going to be available for even the most practical of degrees. And so what is the right answer? Well, one thing I will say is I think more broadly, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament should be evaluated for whether there is uh, an application in our day. With the Fed raising rates like they have, with the expensiveness of homes, with how many Americans are so deeply in debt and paying exorbitant rent prices to where they will not be able to afford a home, to buy a home, with how much our economy has been manipulated for decades. And we're not talking since Obama. I'm talking for the last hundred years. I'm talking, read the creature from Jekyll Island. Our economy has been highly manipulated for as long as we've had the Federal Reserve for our politicians, our elected representatives, some of our unelected bureaucrats to just print money for whatever they want to do. They can vote themselves largesse. They can buy themselves constituents and voters. They can bribe themselves just like they can accept bribes. We need to think about these things for more than just, well, yeah, this person who went and studied that or made bad life choices, they should have to live with the consequences. Hold on. Hold on. Maybe an overhaul is in order. Maybe, just maybe. And maybe if we don't want everybody to be so susceptible to the ideas of Karl Marx, we actually need to be going back to God's word and seeing what God himself told Israel. It can't be some evil, satanic, communistic uh, <laughs> agenda and scheme when it's God himself saying, this is a good thing, right? But we have to study closely, I think, to understand when and how and where it's appropriate and when it's not. And make it a package deal, right? You say, okay. Like my cousin Sterling Mullet said several years ago, he said, you know what? I think if we tied uh, debt forgiveness to strict control of the border and an abolishment of the welfare system, I think that would be a win. I would be willing to accept that trade. And I think, well, you know what? You might be onto something. Right, But this is where we have to get out of just the echo chamber that uh, we've been in. We're staring down a total collapse, either another world war or a long protracted additional cold war or the next civil war. We're, we're staring down some significant economic problems that in turn will lead to societal collapse or uh, a major, major shooting war. And so I think we should think outside the box here, uh, the box that the Republicans and the Democrats 
have built and benefited so much from for decades. I think we should think outside the box as Christians. If Christians are going to get engaged and we're going to bring God's word to bear, it needs to be holistic and not just on the question of gender and sexuality, not just on the question of due process and equal weights and measures. That's all good, right? That's all good. I'm not complaining about it. But I think we need to be more holistic, not because we're under law, but because we don't want to be godless. We don't want to be lawless. We don't want to be told by Jesus himself, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm going to play one more cut for you. And then I've got three more stories, three more current events items to share that are related. But this next cut is Tucker Carlson announcing that he's launching a new show. He was just ousted, as they've been saying. I think more rightly, you could call it being fired from Fox News. But his show was just taken away from him, whatever you call that, at Fox News. And he took to Twitter just today and announced, we're back. Here it is. One more clip for today for this episode. Tucker Carlson, in his own words, explaining what he's planning next. Take a listen. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies. But most of the time, that's not exactly right. Much of what you see on television or read the New York Times is in fact true in the literal sense. It could pass one of the media's own fact checks. Lawyers would be willing to sign off on it. In fact, they may have. But that doesn't make it true. It's not true. At the most basic level, the news you consume is a lie, a lie of the stealthiest and most insidious kind. Facts have been withheld on purpose, along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. How does that work? Let's see. If I tell you that a man has been unjustly arrested for armed robbery, that is not, strictly speaking, a lie. He may have been framed. At this point, there's been no trial, so no one can really say. But if I don't mention the fact that the same man has been arrested for the same crime six times before, am I really informing you? No, I'm not. I'm misleading you. And that's what the news media are doing in every story that matters, every day of the week, every week of the year. What's it like to work in a system like that? After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. 
We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We'll be bringing some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Okay. So, sounds great, you might be saying. Or that sounds awful, you might be saying. Or we'll see, you might be saying. (laughs) Ryan Saavedra over at The Daily Wire reports, Elon Musk releases statement about Tucker Carlson's new show on Twitter. We have not signed a deal. (laughs) Here's his tweet. I'll read it in its entirety. And you can be the judge what this means. And I quote, on this platform, unlike the one-way street of broadcast, people are able to interact, critique, and refute whatever is said. And of course, anything misleading will get community notes. I also want to be clear that we have not signed a deal of any kind whatsoever. Tucker is subject to the same rules and rewards of all content creators. Rewards means subscriptions and advertising revenue share coming soon, which is a function of how many people subscribe and the advertising views associated with the content. I hope that many others, particularly from the left, also choose to be content creators on this platform. So you might say that's maybe pouring some cold water on what Tucker said, or you might say that Elon Musk is just making everybody aware this is not partiality. This is everybody's going to play by the same rules. And speaking personally, I think that's all conservatives have been asking for, for ever. That's what we've been asking for is that everybody play by the same rules. The left will still not be satisfied by this because they don't want everybody to play by the same rules. Their view of progress, their view of fairness is if Tucker is getting more views than some leftist, well, then you should take some of his views and give those views to the leftist. If Tucker is getting more engagement than a leftist or if more people are persuaded by Tucker or you or me, well, then that's not fair. But to a conservative, really, truly, fair is everybody gets a shot. Not everybody gets equal results. Everybody getting equal results is at odds with the law of God. If you do what is well, you will be rewarded. We read at the top of this episode, Leviticus chapter 26. Is God a conservative? Don't go there. But God says, if you obey, there are blessings. If you disobey, there are punishments. And that's not to say that if some people disobey and some people obey, we're just going to spread the blessings out to everybody and we're going to spread the punishments out to everybody. No, that's not what God says. He says just the opposite. If you will obey, then there will be blessings If you will disobey, well, then there will be punishments. There will be consequences. And as a people, we should want the blessings. And we should want, when we say, God bless America, we should want to be the kind of people that is following after the Lord and honoring him with our laws, with our policies, with our elected representatives, with our vote, 
with our voice, with our lives. We should want that. Or else, how do we say, God bless America? Now, meanwhile, set Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson's new venture aside for a moment. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee points out that Fox News ratings after firing Tucker are getting even worse. Fox trailed MSNBC in all evening time slots Friday among the key 25 to 54 demographic. That is brutal. That's brutal, but also after a fashion. That's justice. Meanwhile, put Fox News, put Tucker Carlson, put Elon Musk aside. Altogether, the White House, according to reporting from Joseph McKinnon over at theblaze.com, the White House has banned Founding Fathers newspaper from event just days after Biden expressed support for a free press. This is reporting just from today. And I quote, President Joe Biden claimed at the White House Correspondents' Dinner just over a week ago, quote, the free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar of a free society, end quote. It appears that Biden prefers the presence of only those pillars that support him and his agenda. On Monday, the White House blocked the newspaper established by founding father Alexander Hamilton from attending Biden's only daytime public event where he appeared with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to discuss airline policies in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Although Biden previously contended that journalism is not a crime, the New York Post interpreted its exile as a penalty for illuminating possible improprieties committed by the Democratic president and his kin. The Post reported that the Biden White House's decision to bar it from covering the event was provided without a justification. Quote, we are unable to accommodate your credential request to attend the Investing in Airline Accountability remarks on 5-8. The remarks will be live-streamed and can be viewed at whitehouse.gov. Thank you for understanding. We will let you know if a credential becomes available, White House staff told the Post. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because, again, the point is not Tucker Carlson, and the point is not the New York Post, and the point is not Elon Musk, and the point isn't even Joe Biden. The point is, how do we expect for there to be any accountability, any justice, any freedom, period, if everybody who would disagree, everybody who would challenge, everybody who would say, oh, ho, ho, wait, what about this? This looks bad. This thing that you may be involved in, we're going to report on it. There's evidence, there's testimony, we're going to report on this. If those people are barred from even being present at the event, how do we have any freedom whatsoever? My answer to that question is that we go to God's word and we read good books and we practice being reasonable with one another. The speech by the Super Bowl champion to college graduates, encouraging them to get married and have families is a way to stay free. That might be ironic. That might be surprising. You might say that's counterintuitive because, hey, wait a second, Garrett, you've got all these dependents. And so you're a slave. You're a wage slave. You have to make all this money to provide for your dependents. And I say, to a certain extent, sure, but then again, I don't find my purpose and belonging with coworkers or clients. I find my purpose and belonging with the Lord my God. 
and with his saints. I find my purpose and belonging with my wife and my children, who God has blessed me with the task of providing for and protecting. I find my purpose and belonging, humanly speaking, in raising a family, in community with other families, in church, where we study God's word and we sing praise and worship to our God. That's where I find my purpose and belonging. And so actually, thinking more holistically, I am more free because I understand that these things are not ends unto themselves. And a lot of my peers don't understand that. They don't appreciate that. They don't fully appreciate that if they're pursuing a career as an end unto itself. They're the ones who are slaves to a greater extent than I am. And even if I were in love with my family, but I didn't revere God, I didn't study his word, I didn't pray to him, I didn't worship him, I didn't serve him with my life, well, then what? Right? Then I would be a slave to my family in some sense. And that's the view too many people have as an alternative. They think, oh, if I get married, if I have kids, well, then I'm a slave to my family. That doesn't sound so great. I want to be free. I want to be liberated from all that. And I say, well, you can be a slave to the popular conception of what it means to be free, actually, ironically. What if true liberty is found on God's terms? And what if that helps to make sense of what civic engagement should look like, what engagement in your local church should look like, what engagement in your workplace should look like when you love the people that God has put in your life because you love him. Some thoughts to consider, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.